0: Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It is Tuesday, and you are watching AM to DM.
1: And the Oscar nominations are here, and we are... Conflicted. Yeah. <laughs> Which is usually... The, that's how it usually like, feels. Happy.
0: I mean, I, I realized this morning, and, and we were watching it live in the production meeting this morning, that every year is kind of like, you know, I, I go to the joy. I try to go to the good news. <laughs> so I'm so happy for Regina King. So happy about Black Panther, of course, you know? Um, and then, like, the longer I have time to think about it, it and you go to the timeline, and other people go, start going, what about this movie? What about that? I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, dear. <laughs> there are things to be concerned about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, because it's like, you know, obviously, I, spoiler, I think Green Book is trash at a movie, so that's what I was kind of focusing on and noticing it got a lot of nominations, and it's like, <laughs> but then you start noticing, like, the absences, Yeah. that's like, they're a lot. Absolutely. Ooh. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you feel about this tweet that I should read from David Chen? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he tweeted, God said, God grant me the serenity to accept the Green Book nom- Oscar nominations I cannot change, courage to change the minds about the Green Book nominations that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's very Which, wise. Shout out to you, David.
1: Very wise. It's like going to the
0: calm place.
1: Chris Witherspoon noted that Black Panther has made Oscar history this morning as the first superhero. Hero movie to earn a Best Picture nomination. Come on, Wakanda! That and that really is exciting. exciting.
0: That's, That's some good news. Very exciting.
1: Louis Vertel tweeted, Lady Gaga is now the
0: First person to be nominated for Best Actress and Best Original Song in the same year. Didn't know that. Barbara Streisand is ripping up all of her ivory (laughs) turtlenecks in tears.
1: So that is that is like some of the joy. But like we were talking about, there's also the fact that no female directors were nominated. None. None. Zero. Even for Best Picture, none of the Best Pictures that were nominated were directed by female directors. Embarrassing. There are, Beale Street Could Talk felt like, like, seeing seeing Barry Jenkins felt like a little bit of a stump. rich Asians not getting Shut out any love yeah like and, I, that, and I, I know like
0: Widows was a movie I remember seeing you talk to Alison Wilmore before Christmas mm-hmm. as a movie that a lot of people a lot of critics seem to be very excited about and I don't think I saw any recognition for it at
1: all mm. so it's like wow there are those ones of course I'm really excited about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse kind of getting good it news. Do, good news know? Regina uh, King Minding the Gap is such a wonderful documentary and it was, it was done by this kind mm-hmm. of a new, fresh director to mm-hmm. see that get the acknowledgement. like That's always exciting, which always gets me to think is that's where I go to in these moments. Why do we care about the Oscars? Do you care about the Oscars? Uh,
0: I mean, it, it's hard. I, I feel like I, I care about the Oscars because I know how Hollywood works and like how capitalism works, mm-hmm. right? Like winning and being nominated, that means more capital, more power for the people, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it makes it easier for, uh, let's, let's say like Barry Jenkins, for example, you know, his success with Moonlight makes it easier for him to get support and to greenlight other projects like If Bill Street Could Talk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I don't believe that a movie is better or worse because it won or didn't win an Oscar. Mm-hmm. A few years from now, I won't, probably be able to win, remember who won, right. you know, these different awards. Right, you and, and
1: yeah, yeah, I, I mean, listen, it's we are talking about it a little bit this morning, it's about art mm-hmm. and an institution, right? There is the institution's capital, mm-hmm. the institution's power, like you're saying, it's ability to put a spotlight on right. a movie, but what we're talking about is art, and always with awards, it can feel a little messy and a little tough, especially when you have an art, a, a field as wide as film mm-hmm. to kinda judge these specifics. Yeah. On a personal level, though, I will say it does help. Right? It mm-hmm. certainly does. There are movies now. Black Klansman comes to mind. Oh, yes. I wasn't planning on watching it. Mm-hmm. I will probably watch it now right. because, you know, I'd heard some like, ah, it's it's missable. Mm-hmm. But now that I've seen that it's getting these kind of accolades, right. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, yeah, I, I think I'm a TV person, but
0: I'm going to make an effort to see a lot of these nominees. So, yeah, it's. <laughs> you are a TV I love, person. I love that's, the TV and love the small screen. All right. <laughs> well, let's take this to the timeline. What Oscar nominations are you excited about? What snubs or shutouts are you angry about? There's just a whole menu for you to choose from. Uh, let us know using the hashtag Women Directors Deserve Better from the Academy.
1: There it is. There it is. But listen, it gives us a lot to talk about. BuzzFeed News culture writer Allison Wilmore joins us now. Allison, we turn to you when we are talking movies at all times. How are you? Oh, good. It's an interesting morning already. <laughs> okay, this is what I'm so excited to talk to you about. Why is it interesting? Let's start with the snubs. What, what, what surprised you?
3: Well, it wasn't a surprise but certainly the fact that there were no women nominated is, you know, I think something that we should always bring up because frankly there were so few that were even included as serious prospects, you know. Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is a great film was directed by Marielle Heller and that was probably the movie that had the best chance of a directing nomination for for, for a woman, but like even that didn't make it in. So it's always good to remember that not just like This isn't a surprise like this has been kind of like foreshadowed going all the way through the kind of Oscar ramp up. Uh, And that's depressing.
0: (laughs) That is pretty depressing. Um, You know, again, something that I always try to remind myself, the Academy Awards are not about us. They are not about us necessarily as viewers, how we feel. It's about people in the industry. Um, I know the Academy has made a lot of changes, a lot of younger members. They've tried to address diversity. Is there anything that we can glean from those recent changes into the nominations we're seeing now?
3: Oh, it's so hard to tell. You know, I think that we have seen the effect of having like a more diverse kind of slightly younger Academy, but at the same time, you know, we've got a lot of Green Book and I have to assume that Green Book is a kind of old school pick. Uh, certainly it's not necessarily a, a Twitter favorite. Uh, you know, I, I think that in some ways, when you look at this, this slate of nominations that you kind of see this, like,
1: uh, a push back and forth between like old school academy and maybe like some newer school people some newer school people allison should we just be readying ourselves though i mean i i like to look to optimism i don't want to put this out even into the universe but should we just be readying ourselves for green book to win best picture
3: <laughs> i mean it very well could i would say right now it's probably between roma and green book Uh, you know, Netflix did a huge push for Roma. This is their first like real big showing at the Oscars for one of their original films. So it's, it's a big deal in itself. Uh, but I think that The eight got a lot of surprising uh, nominations, including uh, Best Supporting for uh, Marina de Tavira, which was a surprise. You know, that was a true surprise. Uh, And a Best Actress nomination for Alicia Aparicio. So I think that it's got a pretty solid chance of, of coming through for Best Picture. Uh, I also think that there's always a chance that Black Klansmen, which did really well with nominations, could come through as well. So I would say don't give it to Green Book quite yet. We've got, you
1: know, a lot of campaigning left to do. I'm making Team Roma t-shirts. I ain't even seen the movie yet, but I am <laughs> I want Roma to win just on GP.
0: Um, and it is interesting to this point, Roma and The Favorite tied, I believe, for, for 10 nominations each. And a- as you noted, I mean, Roma is, is black and white. It's set in Mexico. Of course, the director has been critically Lauded for the last few years, so he's not a, a no one. Um, but uh, it, it does seem interesting. Is this a breakthrough year for Netflix as, as a company?
3: I think so. You know, I think that Netflix has been really, in addition to just putting out so much content that I don't think any of us can possibly keep up, Netflix has really been chasing uh, awards kind of confirmation of their their capacity for seriousness. And so I would say that Roma is like a huge deal, a huge step for them, that there have been stories about how much money they've spent campaigning so far. So, I, you know, they've been pushing it so hard. I think it's a kind of interesting testament to kind of how we're changing what we look at as like a, a, like what counts as like a movie if most people are seeing this on the small screen. But also like how we think about who puts out movies because Netflix is really insisting that they are to be taken seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I definitely feel like Roma, it's like no question, it is a serious piece of art. Right. Like They've have, they have sold that and idea.
1: They're, and they're getting the effect mm-hmm. that they were hoping for. Uh, another snub that I definitely just want to talk about this morning and uh, everybody else does too, Joe Lee tweeted, Crazy Rich Asians was one of the best and funniest movies I've ever seen. Even with Black Panther's nominations, that snub hurts. My mixed heritage has mixed feelings. This was a shocker. How did you feel about Crazy Rich Asians, Allison?
3: I mean, I was not expecting it just because it's a kind of movie that the Oscars don't always know what to do with. You know, comedies have a much tougher time. Romantic comedies have been, in general, kind of like off the radar for Hollywood. This was a like last year was a big comeback year. You know, I think like for me in general, I'm just kind of disappointed by the lack of Asian or Asian-American nominations in general. Uh, You know, Burning did not get, which is like a South Korean film that is one of my favorites of the year. It's amazing. It, It didn't get a best foreign language film. Film nomination Steven Yeun who was kind of a off you know chance of getting a best supporting actor he didn't get that either so uh, and I was really hoping for Michelle Yeoh to get a best supporting actress for crazy rotations and none of those worked out so so that's a huge bummer for
0: yeah I-, I was hoping that her performance as the mother in that movie whoo my goodness well um, oh. Allison, <laughs> we're just gonna hang in there for the next month <laughs> to <into> the Oscars <laughs> thank you for joining us oh pleasure. Uh, We have a tweet here from um, MousyCore. I like your Twitter (laughs) name, MousyCore. I'm so excited about Black Panther getting seven nominations. If they don't take home at least Best Costume Design and Best Production Design, I will riot and
1: I will join you. Amen. I I want to just say a couple last things. One, Minding the Gap, we mentioned. It's a great documentary. He loves that documentary. Please do go watch it. And I watched it because Allison recommended it Okay. So that's absolutely fantastic. But also, I just want to point out, Han Solo... Han Solo got one. It was for one of the smaller ones. I know it wasn't for one of the big ones, but it's Han Solo (laughs) got a goddamn Oscar nomination and Crazy Rich Asians was left out in the cold and that feels absolutely accurate. I don't know why I'm pretending. Was
0: Paddington 2
1: snubbed? Paddington (laughs) 2. Justice for Paddington (laughs) 2. All right, Twitter, let's take it to the timeline. Nominated or not, what's your best picture of the year? Let us know using the hashtag AM2DM. Let us know. There's so much. There's a lot to talk about. But we've also got to pay attention to the rest of the news outside of Hollywood. It is day 32 of the shutdown. And one of the places where the shutdown is most apparent is, of course, the airport. Here's a tweet from Joseph A. McCartan. I can understand why unpaid workers at TSA and the air traffic control centers and towers, prisons, and other settings continue to report to work and to do their jobs even as they are held hostage in this standoff. They are dedicated public servants reluctant to
0: break rules. Held hostage by their jobs. Well, Joseph A. McMartin, who is a professor of history at Georgetown University, joins us right now. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning, guys. Hello. Okay, so you are a professor who focuses on labor and the working poor, and that tweet was part of a thread in which you compared the TSA's current predicament to the professional air traffic controller strike in 1981. Um, So unfortunately, Isaac and I are not professors, uh, or at least of history. So uh, talk about the connection between that strike and what's going on now with the shutdown.
4: Well, I think one of the remarkable things that we're seeing right now is that there hasn't been all that much collective resistance by federal workers to the fact that, as you say, we're now 32 days into a shutdown. We've never had anything like this before. And, and the workers are at risk of missing a second paycheck this week. And yet there hasn't been all that much resistance. Uh, and part of that, uh, I think, owes to what happened in 1981. When the professional air traffic controllers organization, a union of the air traffic controllers who work for the FAA, went out on strike. Um, that was illegal. Uh, they knew that, but they had gotten to the point where they felt that was the only way to get the government to take their issues seriously. They were fired by Ronald Reagan, uh, more than 11,000 of them, and they were permanently replaced. They never. Uh, were allowed to, to get jobs back at the FAA. Later Bill Clinton allowed some of them to be re- rehired. But I think that event in 1981 left such a psychic scar on federal workers and their unions that even many who weren't alive uh, at that Oh, Professor, it seems... reason why, oh. even at this two days' end, it's a
1: problem. Absolutely, and it was really great to kind of get that context from your thread. I saw this tweet from our author Barbara N. Reinrich overnight. The shutdown would come to a sudden end if airport workers stop working and shut down air travel business, aka capitalism, cannot function if its minions are all floating in the stratosphere or fattening themselves at Cinnabon. The whole thing should take no more than three hours. That tweet, to me, felt real dismissive. Of everyone. Of of everyone, but especially the workers. Uh, What do you think? Uh, Yeah,
4: I think that was probably Barbara Ehrenreich. And for a week now, she's been calling for a strike uh, of TSA workers. I think that that's a a pretty tall order. Um, To have a strike, I think you'd have to have a vote. Um, And I'm not sure that workers would by a majority be to the point where they're ready to basically defy the law as a strike would be. Um, However, there are other things that workers could do. Um, We've seen TSA workers begin to call in sick, 10% uh, did that on Sunday. I think that kind of thing might grow
0: that kind of thing might grow. And, and, and thank you for noting that there are other options. Well, to that point, listen, you know, I am not a, a member of the federal government. You know, I, I do not work for them. So I, I don't want to tell people what to do in a situation I'm not in, like Barbara Aaron Reich is doing. Um, but that said, what can people watching who care about this, who want to be supportive, what are things that we can do or say uh, that would be con- uh, productive?
4: Well, I think everybody needs to reach out to their representatives uh, in Congress, especially in the Senate, because that's where the bottleneck is right now. Unless senators begin to break with President Trump uh, in this shutdown, it's going to continue. I think, in fact, many Republican senators would like this to end. Um, So I think first people need to reach out to their to their um, senators. I think also people need to reach out to federal workers to ask them how they can help. Um, And I think people should attend rallies, picket outside of federal buildings in support of these workers. They are really suffering right now. Uh, And I think that uh, everybody who cares about uh, our government um, should speak up.
1: Everyone that cares should speak up. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Professor. My pleasure. Absolutely, appreciate that context from him. Absolutely. And, and that's shocking to know. Like, I didn't realize that that had happened in 81, and you can just see how that history plays out now in 2019. Absolutely.
0: And again, when we get to this Friday, that's two paychecks that people are going without. That is that is devastating. Well, guys, we've got a great show for you today, of course. Comedians Amber Ruffin, love her. Derek Waters, love him. Of Drunk <laughs> History, love them, are here. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. <laughs> doing this silly
1: dance. Oh, this is pretty fun. I like it a lot. Okay, so You um, can't see our feet. Listen, when we were just talking to Professor <laughs> McCartan, you said, we're not professors. And then I, I I just quickly caught it. You said, at least not of history. Yeah. And I was just wondering, what do you think we're professors of? I have a
0: master of fine arts and creative writing.
1: Oh, you meant it like a real flex. Yeah, you
0: are like, you could teach. I have taught classes at Rutgers University. Oh, I thought you meant we were like,
1: professors of getting loose. <laughs> I worked hard on wilding. that a <laughs> doctor, <laughs> doctor of love. Yeah, toucher going wild. To that point, I'm gonna get into these fire okay, tweets. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Professor Barbie Girl, you tweeted, instead of does it spark joy? How about does it make you feel like a slut? <laughs> <laughs> and in both instances, you keep it. <laughs> like it. Yo, absolutely. <laughs> if that's what you feel good Doesn't in, make you feel like that's a what slut. you like.
0: Mm, I like that. Mm. Keep it in your life. <laughs> it's cold. We gotta find ways to stay warm. Okay, this next tweet comes from Post Proof Rock. I like that. Uh, there has never been a better year to not know how to read. Oh, come on. Come on. Oh no. That's too dark for me. There's some bad tweets out there, man. <laughs> Just this morning. Oh my god. Steve, I saw yeah, I'm glad I didn't see it yesterday. Steve King of all people had the nerve to tweet like a thank you Dr. Martin Luther King. And I saw was that. like, see? I saw that. Wish I was illiterate, right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Joe, you tweeted on the Tinder date in the coffee shop I'm at, the dude said, "I get where it was coming from, but I think the Gillette ad went too far." And the woman said, "I think this date is over," and walked out unceremoniously. And now he's sitting here alone with his patriarchy, looking stunned. Uh-huh. Good for you, girl. Uh huh. Good for you. Just gonna have to hope your
0: patriarchy calls you back.
1: You were, you were off. You were off. Did you see the the, the Gillette ad?
0: I. I saw people alluding to it. Mm, mm. I have to admit I didn't really watch it. I was Mm. like, well, obviously, like I'm on board with it, but I'm not gonna stress out about that. Yeah, they're they're all so. Sometimes you have to go like, that's a Twitter conversation. I'm just But if somebody says that on a date, yeah, bye. I I like that she was just like, and I think we're done here. Yep, yep. All right. Well our tweet of the day comes from Cherry. Oh, no, that might just be your name. I just think it's clever. <laughs> sure. Ooh, all okay, all right. right. Oh, my God, Cherry. I'm so sorry if that's your, your God-given name. Okay, Tracy. Day, here we go. <laughs> I
5: was just going to oh, let, you, is, go. Casey, look gonna let a, you go. look at that. I was just going to let you go. The
0: cherry emoji <laughs> from Fenty Nipple. Okay, anyway, I will never forget the time I was at a party and we were playing Truth or Dare, and someone dared me <laughs> to go
1: home. That's so messed <laughs> up. Of course you remember well, that. Well, look
0: at you now.
1: You're a cherry emerging. Number one. No one's daring <laughs> you to go home here on AM to DM. But we wanted to take this one to the timeline. Tell us about a time during your childhood when you were completely shaded by your... Friends, oh, man. let us know using the hashtag #AM2DM. You got any uh, traumatic? <laughs>
0: I'm not saying it didn't happen. Uh-huh. I remember once getting teased by actually, this is in the in the book. Okay. I, I was teased by kids at the lunch table, and I was I was just such a nerd, and I was like, and you call yourselves Christians, and like my voice cracked. <laughs> it was like in the seventh grade. It was. <laughs> It was really embarrassing. You have to read the outro because yeah. I'm not going to They should have dared me read to go it. home. All gotta, right. Coming oh, up. I want to hug little Saggy. <laughs> read it. Sorry, He's, sorry, he's sorry. fine. He's fine. Coming up, you get to see Hayes Brown's and sit down interview with Amber Ruffin and Derek Waters from Drunk History. But next, next, we're going live from the district.
1: <laughs> I dare you to go to Jesus. <laughs> Welcome back. It's time
0: to go live from the district. Truth or dare, who's the president? All right, let's start with this tweet from Renato Mariotti. Which quote from today's New Yorker interview with Rudy Giuliani is your favorite? A lot to choose from. One, I'm afraid it will be on my gravestone. Rudy Giuliani, he lied for Trump. Two, it sh- I shouldn't have said tapes. Three, I'm a criminal lawyer.
1: Four, if he did do it, it wouldn't be a crime. Wow. wow. We're joined now by White House correspondent Torini Party. Good morning, Tarini.
6: Good morning, guys.
1: So listen, this is the third day of Giuliani Rudy. keeping himself in the news cycle. <laughs> What's he up to this time? It's
6: been, a, it's been a wild ride with our friend Rudy here for the last few days. And in his most recent New Yorker interview, he's, as you pointed out, said some more conflicting and wild statements and we're still trying to parse through them to make sense of what he was trying to get across. Yeah, and I, you know,
0: why is he doing this? I, like, like, you know, obviously I would imagine if Trump did not want him on camera, Trump could say no more appearances, but that's not the case. So what does Trump or the administration gain from Giuliani doing these kinds of interviews?
6: I think that's a question that a lot of people in Trump's orbit have been asking whether Rudy Giuliani is actually helpful in, in when he goes on T V or you know, hurts their, their statements and the and their cause. Um, So I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking. I think, you know, the the theory that some have talked about is that, you know, because he makes so many statements that he sort of muddies the waters enough where no one knows what's what. And that could be one potential theory. But you're right. The president could call him and tell him not to go on TV and he might do that.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I've seen that, like, kind of muddying the waters, maybe saying things there, and then, like, so that when they do come up, he can say, oh, well, we already talked about that. Like, there's all sorts of things. But let's focus on this interview in particular. What exactly was he talking about? What exactly did he say?
6: Right, so uh, he talked about the the BuzzFeed story, and... He at this, in this particular interview said that the president did not tell Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. Um, he sort of framed the the special counsel statement that came out Friday evening as um, you know a, a complete denial of the story. When in fact the statement, as we know, is more complicated than that and was uh, is worded in a way that's been pretty vague. Um, so you know we are obviously still standing by the story, which was corroborated by two federal agents. Um, he says that you know what the federal agents told us was not true. So. So he, is, he tried to defend um, the president from the story that we published last week. Mm.
1: Okay, Torini. I also couldn't help but notice, like, in the interview, <laughs> they, Giuliani more than once was like, hang on, I got to get off the phone, I got to go take a shower. Uh, and, then, and then I feel like the interviewer did a great job of kind of keeping him going. Uh, one, do we know did Giuliani ever get to take that shower? Or, Tarini, do you have a surreal moment that stood out to you? <laughs>
6: I hope he got to take that shower. Everyone deserves a nice hot shower on a cold day. But um, you know, I thought that it, when he was talking about his legacy, the the gravestone quote that you mentioned earlier is something I could see coming up over and over again because um, you know, given Rudy Giuliani's history in politics and the way he's been defined in the in the Trump era, I, I think that quote really sort of captured that moment. Um, obviously, the tapes. Uh, the other thing that you pointed out uh, is something that. We we and other reporters are gonna be very interested in, given that we know that Michael Cohen did like to tape people. Um, so if there are tapes, you know, we would love to have them. Yeah, yeah, I should not
0: have said tapes, <laughs> <Giuliani>. <laughs> All right, well, also, Torini, of course, it is day, d- third day, d- oh my gosh, it is day 32 of the government shutdown. Um, so we have to ask, though we're scared of the answer, what does the schedule in Congress look like today?
6: So the House and the Senate are coming back into session today. However, there are no votes scheduled as of now. Uh, What we do know is that, you know, as the week goes on, there are some plans, uh, very partisan plans in the House and the Senate that could come up for votes. But at this point, it does not seem like either of those plans will actually end in a a resolution in terms of reopening the government.
1: I want to start having like a sad trombone that I can yeah, play we need a every graphic. time. Yeah, we need a grab that's just like, yep. <laughs>
6: wow.
1: Shout out to Dan the Sound Guy. And wow. thank you so much, Tarini, <laughs> for joining us this morning.
6: Thanks, guys.
0: I love it. I love that she was like, "I hope Rudy Giuliani got to take a shower. You <laughs> dirty,
1: <laughs> filthy,
0: was, muddy it man." Was
1: very, it was very cold <laughs> yesterday too. Well, listen. Up next, Hayes sits down with Amber Ruffin and Derek Waters from Drunk History, one of our favorite shows. I love it. It brings me joy. Stay tuned. This is my Drunk History. Day. <laughs>
7: Hi guys, welcome back. I am so excited to be joined by Derek Waters, creator and host of Drunk History, and comedian Amber Ruffin, one of the show's narrators. Sadly, we are all very sober this morning, so welcome guys, thank you for joining us, despite the lack of alcohol in these <laughs> oh, cars, Yes, we're thank all you. sober. Yes, we all yes. are. Oh, we have to deal with reality. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's get this rolling. Derek. <laughs> You said when you started the series in 2007, you were not a fan of the internet. We're on the internet right now. The show started on the internet. Has your stance changed at
2: all? Oh, I love the internet.
1: (laughs) It's my life. It is
2: the best thing in the whole world. It's how I understand if things are right or wrong from the internet. Uh... It's reality, yeah. and you you have to uh, accept uh, the present tense. And I, when it started, I was just like, no, I like showing shows in theaters Mm -hmm. and liking 10 or 12 people to laugh or not laugh or sending a DVD to friends. But we live in a really cool time where now more people can see your little shorts. And somehow my little short became a show, and I'm (laughs) here. So I'm very, very thankful for the internet. Al Gore. <laughs> Bless you, Al Gore. Um, so what can we expect from season
7: six of the now television show? Um, well, I I
2: humbly think it's funnier. Oh, well, I, funnier. That's yeah, breaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one <laughs> thing we did this season was, I think we've done 205 stories, so I'm trying to do my best to, like, Let other people take my job, you know, like uh, let other people host, like Amber Ruffin is a guest host host this season. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, we're doing different guest hosts and, uh, yeah, more
7: fun. So, Amber, what's it like watching yourself do these narrations? Have you ever had an episode where you're just like, I don't remember making that joke. Every
8: episode. (laughs) Every episode. Every time (laughs) you show me, um, like sometimes... Derek shows me ahead of time, but sometimes I watch it on TV for the first time with everyone else, and I do not remember <laughs> one second of it ever. Like, we will um, have a couple drinks before we even mm-hmm. start right. filming. Like, sometimes you'll get little flashes. Like, <laughs> what I remember being like? People were trying to get me to have a glass of water. Oh no! And I would not. <laughs> that is the hardest thing in the oh, yeah. world
7: to do if someone's like seven drinks in.
1: Yeah, just drink like this water.
5: Who are you I to tell me this? Laugh.
7: Yes, yes.
8: That's what I was doing. And then there was a little um, um, uh, um, uh, there was a little gif of me saying. Water's for pussies. And I, that's how I remembered being like, oh yeah, people were trying to get me to drink water. Yeah. I was like, fuck you guys.
2: No, tell me what to do. That's what alcohol does. It's bad. It doesn't allow help. It makes you a bad boy. It voice. doesn't
8: yeah. at all. Yeah.
7: So what's the process like? Do you like come in with a story idea or does Derek call?
8: you say, you need to learn about Clara Barton like now. Uh, sometimes you can come in with a story idea. But I almost never do because their stories are so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I can't find out something. The drug history team can't. Um, So they will give you, um, you know, like a book and some articles and information about it. And it's always, you know, the most interesting story you've ever Mm -hmm. heard. So it's really easy to learn about. Um, And then you just (laughs) become so passionate about it. It's so funny because... You read this story and you go, mm-hmm. this is an interesting story. Right. But when it is time to convey that story to another person,
2: mm-hmm.
8: it's the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how that works, but you do. It's just it's, alcohol.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's fun, fun. And every story is passionate and ma- making sure that the narrator, like this year, Amber told the story about the Little Rock Nine mm. standing up for education and prejudice and racism and you know you take a story that's so serious but i know amber's doesn't need to make that story funny Mm -hmm. but what she's gonna find in that story that um is funny will be do you know what i mean we never make fun of a story it's just always it's passionate and, and stories that make us all feel like, why mm. don't why don't we all know this story? That's why don't we know about these kids? Yeah, it's just a lot of yelling about, like, this is the best story I've ever
7: heard. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear this right now. Yeah. Yes, Amber, last year you hosted the Writers Guild Awards. <laughs> award season is upon us once again. What's your best award show hosting advice for anyone who might be considering taking a job therein?
8: <laughs> um... The best award show hosting advice I have is to, you know what I did? I just got a room full of my friends and we all just goofed around and then wrote it down. And we ended up having a really good time. I don't know. I also was like, I was like, people should hire more black writers. So at the end of the, um, at the end of the Writers Guild Awards, I just brought out, I was like, you know, it's, Pretty hard to um, find uh, black writers, isn't it? Well, not for you guys, and I brought out nice. <laughs> and introduced all my black uh, television writer friends. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them are working now, so. Oh, good job, good hustle. <laughs> <laughs> so who but, you- uh, but the ones that aren't are Tarek Davis uh, and Don Hooper and Dwayne Perkins.
7: So who so, so, do you have any do you have any names in mind for who you would think would be a good host for the Oscars at this point?
8: <laughs> I mean it it should clearly be Maya Rudolph, but no one's gonna host it. Yeah. They're gonna go hostless. Yeah. Hostless. So
7: they say now they could change their mind. Maybe just subtitles? Yes. <gasps> subtitles host it.
8: What? you Someone did so? tweet Siri should host it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I thought that was great. <laughs> also great host, the Muppets. Uh, vote forward, I voted for I say
7: the Muppets would be amazing. That was a very smart person, whoever came up with that. That's whoever did, I support them wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Now you both are history aficionados, so we wanted to play a very serious academic game with you guys.
2: Oh no! Uh, is this, yes. the best thing? <laughs> <Yeah>. this is <laughs> Welcome <laughs>
7: to <laughs> Historical
2: Fuck Mary Kill. Are you ready? Yes! Oh, okay, historical, fuck. Well, we want to either historically fuck them or...
8: Yes. Or just give them a, a fuck that I like
7: Rules are, they are alive at this point. So <laughs> just jumping on top of that. So first up, we have Mark Antony, Julius Caesar, Cleopatra.
8: You fuck Mark Antony because yeah. in all of his depictions, he was hot.
7: Fair, <laughs> fair, legitimate.
8: So you fuck him. Mm-hmm. You marry Cleopatra because... Um, she's um, she's got a lot of money. I and mean, then, legit. but also she's got like a lot of jewelry. <laughs>
7: <laughs> and so you kill Julius Caesar. And he killed
8: Julius Caesar because he's used to it. Someone's gonna kill him if you don't. It's either you or Brutus, someone's gotta kill him.
2: <laughs> How about you, Derek? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do the next one because right, never right. won that one. Okay. I can't beat
7: that. Okay, so here we go. Queen Elizabeth II, Queen Mary Tudor, and Mary, Queen of Scots.
8: <laughs> Derek, what I'm you got? Glad I took the first one.
2: <laughs> Which ones do I kill me? Uh, I, uh, Mary, I don't have any jokes for those, though. I, I don't think I know enough of their uh, history. Well, then just Mar- pick them at random, then spin the wheel in your Mary, room. Queen of Scots. Um... Sounds like that would be who I would marry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sounds like she's very versatile. <laughs> and then uh, what was the other one? Uh, Tudor uh, Mary Tudor. Mary Tudor. I need Queen Elizabeth II. Some. Oh, well, any queen I would fuck. Um, <laughs> and then I'll kill a Tudor. So uh, yeah. Legit. Okay, Amber,
7: Frederick Douglass. George Washington Carver, and Duke Ellington.
8: (laughs) Ah. Okay, so you marry Duke Ellington Mm. because he's a musician. He's going to be romantic. Uh (laughs) Um, You, oh, fuck. You, oh, fuck.
7: (laughs) Uh, Do you you eliminate peanut butter or do you keep slavery,
8: basically? What do you want? You you fuck Frederick Douglass. Okay. Because of his hair. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then... Jeez. Yeah, you gotta kill George Washington Carver. Kill George Washington Carver. I never thought I'd say that, but I'm going to kill George Washington
7: Carver. These are the rules. You have to go back and murder him now. Okay, last one, Derek. Yeah. Nellie Bly, Mm. Amelia Earhart, Mm. Susan B. Anthony. Uh, (laughs) Oh.
2: Yeah. Well. Shit. Comedically or realistically? Um, Use the choice uh, we make uh, every day. <laughs> I would marry Susan B. Anthony. Mm-hmm. Um, I would fuck Amelia Earhart because <laughs> it writes itself. You don't know where she went. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> oh, I. That leaves Nellie Bly. I don't want to kill Nellie because she's gonna. I mean, Susan B Anthony is. I guess I gotta kill her. But she's like, I don't know. Uh, I thought she was crazy. Maybe I believed her when she was pretending to be crazy. I killed her. Good explanation post facto. uh, Good. Just to for the record, I would love to fuck all.
8: I wish I, put, I, really <laughs> I, I wish I could fuck all. I wish I could fuck all
2: you. I say that. It's easier to play this game when they're dead. i yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're not going to play. It doesn't feel as bad saying you want to kill someone. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, they're right, dead. Right. Okay, so this has
7: been amazing. Derek, Amber, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Wrong History is on Comedy Central Tuesday nights at 10 p.m. More Em dm is up next. Stick around, guys. Yeah.
9: Thank you.
10: Is wild you can be in the middle of a conversation asking if they like peach rings and then they don't reply and then you never ever find out if they like peach rings or not fucked up yeah that's right Beth that is fucked up but what if you looked at dating the way you looked at your break account Lonvo BuzzFeed News senior breaking news reporter joins me now to discuss her latest piece how do you calculate the emotional cost of ghosting someone Mom, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome, what a fun topic. I know, right? You were telling me all about this before we even got on (laughs) air, but I have to back up a little bit and ask you, what made you turn your amazing research and analytical brain and skills to this
11: topic? Because usually I feel like you're doing a little more (laughs) serious of topics. I know, I know. One of the things that I wanted to do is look into how technology screws with a lot of parts of our lives, right? And one of the most prominent things that you keep on hearing about is like, oh, people just kind of disappeared on me, especially in the realm of online dating. And I was like, you know what? I can harvest my own data and start looking into that. How many people have I ghosted? How often have I been ghosted? Uh, And how does that actually turn society into a much less accommodating space.
10: (laughs) So why do you think that is? How do you think that this aspect of our online lives is changing the way that people view relationships and,
11: you seem to think, making society a little (laughs) bit worse? (laughs) I mean, there, there are a lot of economists, for example, who say online dating has done this incredible thing of giving you a lot more choice. But sometimes too much of a good thing is really bad for you. So one of the things that I've realized is that looking into online dating strips away a lot of human parts of like interconnect, um, like interhuman connections, right? So if you look into um, the ways in which we're looked, at, the ways in which we're trained to look at apps and just kind of play, keep playing, um, to just have as many people as possible that we can maybe match up with is actually really bad for being accountable to one another in a very normal day. Like on a day-to-day, if I bump into you in the street, I have, I feel I have more of an obligation to say, I'm sorry, okay, goodbye, than to anyone I see online because all I see is a bunch of profile heads and like a few descriptions of them. And then swipe, I get to the next one. At what point do you think that you owe someone closure? I think a lot of people view
10: like Tinder, the apps, as almost a game, right? Like yes. like I think that's the reason why people do ghost people more frequently is they don't see them as real people. But I guess there's people who would say, you know, I we only talked a few times, maybe I don't owe you anything. Right. What do you think about that? Do you think that we do owe people closure?
11: So we did a little survey with our readers. We wanted to understand, okay, how, there's no playbook for this, right? We've only started online dating maybe like five, six, seven years ago, I don't even know, um, and there is no social etiquette that has been kind of formulated yet. And so we wanted to see what actually makes for an acceptable time to someone, And a lot of people said, okay, if I message you in the app, that's fine. I, that's not even a big deal. I don't have to talk to you anymore. But then there's things like, okay, after one date, can I ghost someone? It was kind of like a split opinion on that. And then maybe after multiple dates after having sex or going home to their parents or so, that's when you start owing people something. And I think that big conversation about what emotional debt do I owe you? When do I actually break up with you and not let you flail and break up with yourself? That's a big question. That I don't think we've really thought about yet.
10: You also were talking to me before we went on air that there are apps like Hinge <laughs> who have anti-ghosting technology. So the apps are, you know, the apps are destroying us, but they're also trying to help us out, right? Uh, on some level yes
11: so one of the things i mean like ghosting has now transcended into employment like people are ghosting their employers after accepting a job and so on and one of the ways in which these apps are trying to improve the situation is to get better feedback so one of the one of the features that hinge put in place was called we met where they are trying to get real ter- uh, like real time information about okay you've exchanged numbers what happened afterwards did he ghost you was he kind of a douche i don't know um, and so people can actually say, oh yeah, this was great. Send me more people like that, and so on. And that gives you an indication of how people. Um, comport themselves in real life, because everything else is just like a swipe or a like or a very simple text message that you can send on an app. But once it actually gets to like real life accountability, it's a very different game. And I think for them to feed that back into the algorithm that gives you better people is also a way of being like, okay, this guy ghosted, let's not have him in there anymore.
10: Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I approve of this hinge. You know, if someone keeps ghosting people, they should just like kick them off or like only send them like you know other ghosters, so then they can just like keep ghosting each other. Into, into eternity. Well, Lam, um, thank you so much for joining me today and we want to take this one to the timeline. What is your worst ghosting story? Let us know using the hashtag am I maybe can share mine. Maybe you can share yours. I don't know. And we will be right back.
1: Welcome back Here's a tweet from Mel Magazine. We talked to women who watched their partners become radicalized by hate on the fringe right. Hossein Kasvani, who wrote this story, and Ellen Eves, one of the women interviewed in the piece, join me now. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Hi. I'm uh, good, thank,
6: thank
1: you. Doing
5: good. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Thank you so much for coming on, both of you. Hussain, this question's for you. You spoke to two women whose boyfriends were red-pilled by fringe far-right <laughs> hate groups via YouTube. Where did the term red-pilled come from, and what does it mean?
5: Um, so, you know, red pill" has been around for a while. I wasn't able to kind of track its first origin, and one of the interesting things was when I published it, uh, lots of people who I would identify as being red-pilled, like, were disputing uh, where, where the term came from. Um, but I think it largely kind of, it, 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 it explains kind of this, this part of what is known as the manosphere, which are various kind of subgroups, which are male dominated. Um, they tend to kind of focus on like masculine, like issues around masculinity. Um, but the thing that kind of unites them is an, antip- an antipathy or hesitation towards anything to do with like feminism um, and believing that like patriarchy is ultimately good in that there is a conspiracy or that the erosion of, the patriarchy or patriarchal standards um is going to is linked to like the decline of civilization whether that's western civilization or uh civilization as a whole
1: all right and now ellen i want to ask you what were some of the earliest signs you noticed that your boyfriend was red pilled
9: um quite early on really Um, We went out for my birthday probably about a week after we started seeing each other. And he told me that, you know, women who have sex with lots of men are just generally less desirable. Um, And then linked it back to like caveman times where he said, you know, because back then how he meant to know if the child was yours, things like that. And it was pretty shocking to hear that straight away. So, uh, yeah, just things like that just dropped into conversation over time, which is sort of like, oh, wow, can't believe you just said that.
1: And that, and that those are his views. And now, of course, um, in the piece, Hussein, you kind of talk about how certain partners will then disparage um, the women that they're seeing, uh, basically trying to make them feel good for their views. But some uh, men conv- try to convince their partners to agree with their fringe beliefs. What tactics do these videos and forums teach them?
5: Right. I think it, it, it varies because as I was speaking to women and I, I, had, um, I had written the stories about Ellen and a woman who are called Sarah, uh, in the piece, but actually I spoke to a lot more, um, who told me things on background. Um, you know, so their experiences varied from, you know, women, you know, having partners who, you know, in theory wanted to kind of have debates and discussions, but only to a certain point, um, after which they would get angry about their partners wouldn't, you know, agree to their views, uh, you know, in some forums. So I mentioned, uh, that there's a group called married red pill, where there's a bunch of, uh, guides, for husbands to try to quote-unquote like red pill their wives um basically into kind of believe it you know into seeing their point of view about you know for example uh women working at home or like if if their wives like don't want to have kids and like they really do how can you um you know how can you convince them to do that using arguments which go back to you know ideas of what old traditionalism should be Um, some of them went even as far as like to introduce Uh, you know, sentences or conversations where you could employ like neurolinguistic programming uh, to try to try convince their partners uh, that they should do this. Uh, You know, I'm not sure if any of it worked, but the fact that it was just there and that, you know, they felt that it was completely fine to try to like, uh, psychologically convince your uh, convince their partners to uh, bend to their will. you know, that was kind of scary enough.
1: Yeah, to actually have talking points. And now, obviously, a lot of these talking points or the trainings that you're talking about live on sites like Reddit, 4chan, and also mm-hmm. YouTube. So are these far-right yeah. videos something that YouTube is consciously amplifying with its algorithm?
5: Um, I think this is a complicated question because I think even though social media outlets have by and large kind of accepted that they have this problem to do uh, you know, that they have like a far right problem. Some of them will only say that, you know, the things that will, you know, that we want to take care of are like the really extreme ends. So we'll only get rid of things that like overtly call for violence. We'll only get rid of things that overtly cause like division or that we can see directly causing violence. Um, in other cases, they use terms just like extremism as a whole to denote what this content is without like looking at the nuances. So that allows people like on the red pill spectrum, who's like, you know, May not have like super super extreme views to say that well we're not advocating violence we're not advocating you know abuse of any kind we're not even advocating you know psychological abuse so how can we be noted as extremists Um, and I think it ultimately goes to show that like the whole you know this type of red pill community um, even though they are varied like you know they still you know the parts that don't seem dangerous in regards to how social media safety policy is currently constructed, I I think it ultimately shows that like, you know, these social media organizations need to have like a much more complicated, a much more nuanced understanding of what this type of extremism is.
1: Absolutely. Now, Ellen, in the story you said, and this is a quote, I compromised so much of my convictions and beliefs to help him. So how did you sacrifice your own beliefs in the hope of preserving the relationship?"
9: Um, just in the fact that I was actually in a relationship with someone who had those views was like compromising my views. Cause I'm quite like a strong, I got strong opinions, a complete opposite way. And it was almost like a, it was just like a, like secret and embarrassment that I had this boyfriend who had like some most repulsive views that, um, you know, I didn't take him out with my friends. I didn't want him like socializing with people. So I, and I sort of like, you know, I never actually came to came to like agree with him, but I, the fact that you were kind of like enabling and validating him by being with him, um, you know, it made me feel guilty.
1: It made you feel guilty and and, and by comparison, well, uh, when this story came out, you did see a lot of people kind of struggling to find sympathy uh, for the partners. What would you say to people that are kind of like, well, listen, you should have been in the relationship in the first place?
9: Um, yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, I had my own reasons for it, but none of them really like uh, justify justified reasons at all. It was just uh, being young and naive and thinking that I could probably like change him. and um, it turned out to be like it was just he was too far gone. And I think it's just not it's not someone's responsibility to do that anyway. So I wouldn't ever make the same mistake again.
1: Wouldn't ever make the same mistake again. But I, I, I personally, when I read this story, I felt a lot of sympathy for you and the other woman that Hussein talked with. So thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and joining us this morning. Thank you, Hussain, for writing the piece. Thank you so much. Thank you. Up next, Saeed's going to be back on set and we're going to be responding to a few more of your tweets. We'll be tweeting that article out right now. Welcome back, friends. Uh, We
0: asked you, of course, what Oscar nominations. You're excited, angry, just like, just stressed out about So much (laughs) is going on. Princess Leia said this. Honestly, I am shocked Black Panther got seven nominations, including Best Picture, but did not snag a cinematography nomination or hair and makeup nomination. That was a choice. Yeah, I can tell you. I was convinced they were a shoo-in for hair and, and makeup. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the hair and the styling. I mean, Angela Bassett's like, dreadlock width
1: alone. Everything. It was beautiful. Everything. I, I agree with that 100%. And there were only
0: three, and that's
1: every year? I just like the idea that they had seven nominations, and if they got the ones we kind of thought they were going to get, that would have pushed them up to 10. Then they would have been in the, that front running. Then Black Panther, Best Picture. That's all I'm saying. No, wouldn't we- it be nine? Seven. Seven plus two? No, I was saying we could get three. I was adding Oh, just add one more. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we asked what is your best pitcher of the year, nominated or not, and Mm. Jay Runham says, screaming from the top Mm. of my lungs, Paddington two. Right. Paddington,
0: I too. forgot. I, I
1: forgot. Justice for Paddington. Man, it's it's really beautiful. It is. It is actually. Very that would touching, be another
0: beautiful. one. I, it's interesting. Production design. I wouldn't have expected to be the category I was so passionate about. But I would say the production design, like in Crazy Rich Asians and Paddington Two, is gorgeous.
1: Just for those beautiful. pink and black like prison suits alone. Oh, I forgot about it. We should go as that is for Halloween. <laughs> I gotta watch that movie again today. All right. Thank you to all of our
0: guests. We would like to congratulate all of the nominees. Allison <laughs> Wilmore, Joseph A. McMartin, Tarini Party, Hayes Brown, Ever Ruff, and Derek Waters. They were really fun. Mm. And that Fuck, Mary Kill was They great. were having parallels. I loved it. Sure. I loved it. Uh, as well as Stephanie
1: McNeil, Lambo, Husseini Khovani, and Ele- um, Ellen Eves. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. Great conversation there. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great, wonderful rest. Best of your Tuesday. We'll see you tomorrow. You Except for Green Book. Fuck you. <laughs>